Well, years ago, when the founder of Walmart, Sam Walton, died, well, his eldest son, Rob Walton, inherited the billions of dollars from the foundation, from the corporation. I remember Sam Walton was kind of a good old guy. He, he didn't show a lot of errors. At times, he drove his pickup. We were in Arkansas at that time in, in some of those years. And uh, I remember when the Walmart in our little, our little city of Batesville, Arkansas, northern Arkansas, uh, was open. He came to town, and, and he led cheers. It was, it was more like, uh, can you say, uh, an assembly of, of high school students rather than employees. And uh, that was just kind of the way it was back then. But things have changed. As always, generational change occurs uh, as well. And actually, the eldest son, Rob Walton, inherited the billions of dollars in his inheritance and the family inheritance. And he started out as the president of the company until he passed away in 1992. And the Walton family currently is the richest family in the world. The richest family in the world, owning the largest retail chain of thousands retail stores in, in many different countries, and it's estimated that the family fortune is over $190 billion, which is more than I think any of us could count uh, or care to count. Probably many of us have daydreamed. I don't know if you ever have, but uh, have you ever daydreamed maybe, maybe when you were a teen or, or so that, or later, that you had a long-lost relative? Who, who willed you his estate? All right, and you kind of thought, "Wow, incredible! How would that, how would that be to, to receive, let's say, that kind of financial wealth that basically all of us don't know or never experience?" Well, besides the fact, of course, that that for any one of us in the church, I've always assumed that it wouldn't be good for us. I guess we know ourselves, but it's easy to be distracted. When you got a lot going, when you got a lot financially going, and I haven't known of a whole lot of people who have, I know there's some, but who come into not wealth, but a higher level of, let's say, assets and have done very well, though it's possible. And I know that God has probably has had some who fit that category, and that's great. We know wealth can be a little distracting. We know that Solomon found that to be the case, uh, creating his own little empire. And Satan society, I think most people, and most of us, if we inherited a lot of, let's say, assets, we would probably, not that we'd think this way, but in time it's kind of like if you have all your needs met continually, you maybe don't depend on God as much. It just kind of slips up on you. You don't have any significant needs. At least you think you don't have any significant needs, but you do. And that is, of course, spiritually. And that is, of course, something all of us want something more than at the end of our life than six feet under. We want something more which God has to offer. Well, even so, even though it wouldn't be good for us if that ever happened, it would be exhilarating for a while to receive an inheritance uh, as such, and, you know, a person would be up for a while, I'm sure, 
But we all know that wealth tends to bind us and blind us human beings to the needs of God's continual intervention in our life. I don't mean just healing, guidance, direction, gentle correction. We all need it. And something hopefully we ask for from time to time is a little bit of gentle correction. So God will show us, you know, things that we ought to be working on. Of course, in our progression in life, conversion is not a one-time experience as we know. It is a lifetime experience where hopefully year by year we're thinking about things that we should be working on. Maybe every year we have two or three things on our list. Okay, this year, maybe till the feast next year, I'm going to work on this and this and this. If one's specific, then you have a chance of making success. If you're not specific and it's simply... I need to be a better Christian. That is so general, it's worthless. It is so general. We need to be specific. Well, for those who truly overcome, in spite of the fact that in this age, wealth is probably a liability, great wealth, we find that those who truly overcome in this life are promised immense wealth yet to come. Incredible. Let's look at Romans chapter 8. And verse 16, Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. And it says in verse 16, the Spirit, and it may be translated himself, but we know, we understand, it should be more properly itself, the mind and the power of the great God, the Spirit itself, bears witness with our spirit, our human spirit, you know, that connection, God's spirit and our spirit. And the human spirit, as we know, has no consciousness, but it gives us a much higher intellect. Incredible. I kind of think of the human brain as the kind of the hard drive, maybe for a a lack of a better analogy, and the human spirit is, is the software program that makes us can I say light years ahead of the average intelligent mammal? Well, same thing applies spiritually when we receive God's spirit. It's kind of like a major, major upgrade in spiritual understanding. Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And that's a mouthful to think about being a child of God. And, of course, the world doesn't grasp that. You know, when God's spirit joins the human spirit, a new spirit life is begun. And it's, as we know, and as we learned many years ago, it's so closely paralleled to human reproduction. And I remember taking a human embryology class many years ago. I assumed it was going to be boring, but it was fascinating to see that incredible design by the Creator in a single cell. And on cue, all that genetic code in the nucleus, on cue, after so many minutes and seconds and hours, certain cells would change course and form a new tissue. And invisible, let's say, code (laughs) designed by the creator, the programmer, the supreme programmer of all life on the planet, and every life form designed and engineered genetically, incredible. Well, it goes on to say, if we are children, at least begotten, you know, we're not, we're kind of like, can we say embryos or 
or so, we're growing. We're not. We're, we've got more growth spiritually to occur before we're born into the into God's family, the spiritual family. It says, if we are children, then we are heirs. We're heirs, meaning we will inherit something if we continue on, if we succeed. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. We're joint, meaning we inherit what Christ inherits. If indeed we suffer with him, and suffering, you know, it doesn't, maybe suffer doesn't tell us precisely the meaning here we should get out of it, but it means we endure, we, 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 we pass tests, difficulties. Satan's world is kind of programmed. Satan programs it not to support us in God's way of life. Well, yeah, there is some suffering, of course, but it means we need to endure and we need to not compromise and we need to move forward and make changes. If we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And, you know, we can, we can gloss over that word glorified and not realize, of course, that we will be fully glorified as Christ was glorified as a very powerful spirit being. Incredible power. We'll talk more about that later. But we can be glorified together. And another verse in Revelation tells us, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Now, that's the broad inheritance. Shall inherit all things. All things means all things. Ultimately, the universe, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Incredible statement. Incredible. The inheritance being literally a son of God, a junior God being. You know, never equivalent to God the Father and Jesus Christ, but an Elohim being, we might say, and in Hebrew, one of the God family. Not an angel, not a servant in that sense. Well, we will serve, but in a different sense as children of God, starting in the millennium in a few short years. It's probably kind of hard to fathom being joint heirs with the creator of the vast universe with Christ and inheriting all things. Do we take it literally or do we, well, do we, myth, do we make it an analogy? Well, looking at the various scriptures, it's not an analogy, it's reality. That's one thing we have to be able to do is to determine the difference between analogy and reality. And, of course, we must be led by God's Spirit to accomplish that. So this afternoon we're going to look at the future inheritance of the firstborn, of the firstborn family of God, sons of God, during the millennium, and also one of the requirements to receive our inheritance. There are requirements and, of course, we know in, in many, many ways we must qualify, but we'll look at one of those requirements to receive an inheritance. Title of the sermon, The Meek Shall Inherit the Earth. And we know it goes even beyond the earth, but we'll stick with the earth for now. The meek shall inherit the earth. Well, let's start by going directly to Christ's words on on the subject. Let's look at Matthew Matthew five five. 
Christ stated in verse 5, Matthew 5, he said, blessed, meaning you will be blessed, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, there you have it again, inheritance. The Bible has quite a bit to say about inheritance of the firstborn. Now, this is the Creator speaking here. When Christ said that, you know, the Logos, the Word, the Spokesman, the God of Israel, the one who created all things. Unless someone thinks this is simply a figure of speech, which it is not, there are at least seven different places and locations in Scripture that speaking of inheriting the earth. And it's very clear that that is God's plan and that's God's intention for those who endure, for those who take up the challenge to make that the highest challenge of their life, not just a Sabbath issue, but their highest goal and priority in their life. One more example and there are over seven, at least seven. Let's look at Psalm 37, 11. Psalm 37, verse 11. And it's stated in verse 37, But the meek, here we have the meek again, whatever, whatever meek is, But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And, of course, we understand that peace is going to spread over the planet. It's going to be, that's the general state among the family of God. They're at peace. They're not at war. They're not in competition. They help each other. It's not supreme cutthroat competition to rise. We're at peace. And, of course, the entire earth will be at peace. In Psalm 37, I believe, I believe that's the psalm where seven different or three different times, you know, uh, David said in, in so many words that the meek, the righteous as well, will inherit the earth. So we have it stated multiple times. If one thinks it's only an allergy, of course, then we misread the plan of God. But you know, the whole world is misread. At least they know not. The plan of God, the theologians of the world, the learned ones, when they look at the scripture about inheriting the earth, in their mind, it cannot believe what the Bible says. It absolutely cannot. It's only analogy. Well, here's an example of one Bible commentator. And he said this, To inherit the earth for me right now means to be given strength to face the disease that has afflicted me. Okay. So he says it's given strength to overcome my human, my human issues. He goes on to say, To inherit the earth is to know the fullness of love and companionship with my wife and family. Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, we could, we could all want that. But is that what inheriting the earth means? He goes on to say, To inherit the earth is to know friendship based on love and respect rather than what one can do for me. And, of course, you know, he has some good points, but he totally misses the understanding of the plan of God. And one more, same commentator, to inherit the earth is to be at peace with God. 
Well, obviously, we will need to be at peace with God to inherit the earth, or we won't be an inheritor or, or an heir. Uh, God wants those children, his children, to think like he thinks, to make decisions like he, he makes, kind of like what human parents want of their children as they grow up. And God's no different. He wants children he can trust with great responsibility, with great inheritance, to use it effectively, not to boost ego, you might say, and to feel elevated, of course, which is one of the main components of human nature when you analyze it, of course, from Satan himself. But one of the basic components of human nature is the desire to elevate self. You know, men and women exhibit it differently, but it, it seems to be core the desire to elevate self, for some is to be admired. Uh, there's, there's different aspects of how people want to accomplish that. But as Satan said, Lucifer at one point in time, I will rise above the heights of the north. I will be like the Most High. So that is basic satanic nature, which we absorb you know, over our years. And striving to want to be somebody should not be our goal. That is not of God. Of course, wanting to be humble, submissive, meek children of God serving in the millennium is another story, a totally different story. Well, I think it's absolutely amazing how people can take the plain scriptures you know, that are crystal clear to us and take away their real meaning, mythologize, if I can use that word, if that is a word, mythologize those words, even of Christ, especially when it comes to the kingdom of God, especially. Satan really hates the thought of God establishing his authority on the planet. You know, he is power hungry. He wants to remain in power. And Satan hates that whole thought of the kingdom of God of Satan being removed from power. You know, sometimes you might wonder, or I might wonder, why in the world does he keep going? He knows the prophecies. And, of course, he may be thinking that, as we know, all prophecy must be fulfilled. He may assume if he can delay fulfillment of certain prophecy, and even of the work of God, if he can delay it, then maybe he can delay his removal. But he's wrong. <laughs> It's not going to happen. God's in control. Of course, Satan is anything but meek, which according to Christ, meekness is one of the criteria for inheriting the millennial earth and its assets. Meekness. And before we get into that inheritance in some detail, let's look at meekness and why it's essential. Why is it essential to inherit the earth, to be with Christ, to rule under Christ? To most people, meekness sounds like what, as we've often heard? Sounds like weakness of being timid, perhaps spineless, you know, that's the image of the world. One thesaurus online lists meekness synonyms as docile, unassuming, passive, subdued, hesitancy. Now, was Christ docile and passive? 
when he overthrew the money, cha- the money changers' tables? Was Moses subdued and hesitant when he railed against the Israelites when they lost it? You know, the golden calf and the rebellion and all that kind of thing. I don't think so. I don't think Moses was passive. Both Christ and Moses were meek according to the Word of God. Even one scripture says Moses, maybe at that time, was the meekest man on earth. So what is meek? Do we want to be meek or not? Well, when we read of meekness in the Bible, again, which is one of those criteria to rule the earth with Christ, it literally means strength or power under control. Think about control. Under control. And the Greek origin, praus, P-R, transliteration, P-R-A-U-S, is translated strength under control. You know, in ancient Greece, horses were used in war. Sometimes there were wild horses that were, that, were, that were trained extensively and very selectively in ancient Greece. And they were very powerful animals and yet were trained to be strong, yet always under control in battle and willing to submit, to submit to the rider. Years ago... I had an aunt who loved horses, and uh, she she raised basically show horses. That was it. wasn't race horses, but show horses. And she had a hybrid Morgan Stallion, uh, jet black, kind of very spirited, high-stepping, uh, one-year grand champion uh, of a Morgan show. And uh, it was kind of a unique, beautiful horse. And one time I was visiting, I was, I was a teen, and she invited me to ride this Morgan, her, her horse, her show horse, her grand champion, to my cousin's ranch, who was a number of miles away. And I, I was a little bit timid, you know, intimidated, not, not being really experienced on horseback. And I knew this horse was spirited, and so I was a little bit intimidated. But my uncle gave me a leather... I don't know what we call those. It's not a whip, but a leather device. He told me to, to let him have it, <laughs> uh, to let him have it if he wouldn't follow my direction. And I thought, oh, right, sure, I'll let him have it. <laughs> uh, you know, and not be on the ground and there he'd go or something. So anyway, after a mile or two out, out in, the, in the country, there was another corral with some horses, some mares, I'm sure. And he decided, this horse I was on decided he was going to head that way. And I didn't want him to go that way, so I would kind of rein him over. And I'd get him back a little bit, and then he'd head that way. And he, he probably realized I was kind of a greenhorn. <laughs> and so I realized at one point that unless I got him under control, um, I wasn't going to go where I wanted to go. I'd probably end up walking. So I thought, okay, we need a little control, so I'll do what my uncle said. I'll let him have it with a leather thong or whatever it was, and I did let him have it. I was kind of a little apprehensive, but as I recall, the ears went up, and from that moment forward, he, he totally submitted. He totally he calmed down. He totally submitted. And uh, years later, thinking of that example, I thought, well, this horse was a very powerful horse, 
But at that moment, when he was under control, he was prouse. You know, powerful, but under control. And that is exactly, of course, Jesus Christ and his nature. Very powerful as a spirit being, but totally under control at all times. And that is something that we need. That's something that God needs in his family. We'll have very great power as full-born sons of God, but we'll have to keep it under control, as explained with prowess and meekness, under our control, but under godly control. You know, we should never, I've often thought in this life, we should never be at a point where we allow others, you know, others with their attitudes to control us. Bad attitude, do it. Do we lash out with an equally bad attitude? Do other people play us, control us? Well, that's not what God is looking for. But Christ was meek when he was on earth. He was prouse. He was power under control. And when he returns then as King of kings and Lord of lords, and the nations are assembled to do battle and destroy him and those with him, Scripture says he will decimate those 200 million at Megiddo. He will still be meek, power under control. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 26. Verse 26. And he who overcomes... And keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations, literally. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, lovingly. And they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, those who come up against the Creator. You know, Scripture implies that that assembly of some 200 million, especially of the East, will be decimated in an instant. You know, their their flesh will melt while they're standing on their feet. And that is such a loving means of execution. They're instantly annihilated, at least killed, reserved to be resurrected in the second resurrection. That's, That's a loving side of the great God. Well, the meek will be given power over the nations, as it says, But the meek are also described as those who overcome. Those who overcome self. And the need to be in wannabe, the wannabes, the wannabe somebody. The need to elevate self, the need to compete. Overcome the tendency also to be easily offended. Overcome the lack of self-control. Overcome the harshness and out-of-control anger. You know, that's all part of being... Make power under control. A successful yet meek Christian realizes his own human limitations. You know, we, we all recognize that, I assume. We recognize our weaknesses. We're far from perfect, though that should be our trajectory. And we continually, one is meek, ask God for strength and guidance and self-control. In this way, he becomes strong. 
Meek, but strong. You could say prouse. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10. As it says in, in verse 10, and has made us firstborn kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. We shall reign on the earth. What quality would you like in a king and a spiritual leader? How about strength, but also patience? and kindness, and gentleness. These are qualities that we would all want God to show towards us, right? We, we want a gentle God. We, we hope, we ask, if we ever ask God to correct us, we ask God to correct us gently, gently. You know, we, we're weak beings compared to God. And hopefully we're sensitive to correction well, those are the same qualities you know, that we like. We do see in God and Christ, but those are the same qualities that God wants us to show others. Okay, this is our training time. It's not after Christ's return. This is now our training time. God wants us to learn to show those qualities to others, and so that we will have it at the beginning of the kingdom. And we can show it towards humanity. But we must develop it now. We must develop that character, a basic character trait of the great God himself. In the millennium, we'll represent God. We'll represent the God family. We'll be junior members of the family of God. Never never equal to God the Father and Jesus Christ, but, but junior members of the family... And we'll need to exhibit that same strength with patience and kindness and gentleness to the world. And it's going to be a mess. And we're going to need to have that character from day one. You might say when you hit the ground running, there's going to be a rebellion. And, of course, Christ's going to lead the way. But we're still going to have to have individual control, self-control, or we would be... A problem. Obviously, if we're going to have a true sense of godly meekness during God's kingdom, we're going to have to, again, as I mentioned, we're going to have to develop that character trait now, something we should work on now. You know, that's not typical human nature. Human nature is nobody's going to push me around. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. That's the American spirit, the independent spirit. And that won't fit in the family of God. Uh, that, that disqualifies one with the extreme of that, obviously. Overcoming does require power and strength, yet meekness does imply gentleness and kindness and patience, just like Christ exhibited. God is strong, yet gentle. He is powerful, yet patient. He is all-knowing, yet kind. The supreme character of Jesus Christ. And a person who would be meek 
is that he is a man under control, under we could say self-control, but ultimately it would be under godly control. You know, we've learned we've learned to to acquire the qualities of God, and that self-control implies godly control. We're submissive. We're not haughty and proud. We're submissive, and of course, that person who would be meek and an inheritor of the earth is perfectly. Godly controlled. And you know, only God can give perfect self-control. We know that. Yet, we are only human. We make mistakes. We never reach perfection in this life. But that is our target, should be. That is our goal. In other words, we should be making progress. Should be our direction in this life. Remember, first comes character, then comes the inheritance of the earth. Character comes first. If it doesn't, how could God ever say, now I know? How could God ever say, I can fully trust you with other people's lives and the assets of planet earth at the same time? Now let's get get back to the inheritance that the meek will receive and use in the kingdom for really for humanity's sake. We'll be using the wealth or the resources of planet Earth, as we know, as scriptures say, maybe some have been covered already, to rebuild cities, to rebuild nations. God's way, for starters. And we drive around... uh, Across the West and in our area in California, we see a lot of houses being built. You know, they're almost, they're, some of them big mansions. <laughs> you know, they, they call them big mansions. They, they may have 4,000 square feet, but you could spit across the yard to the next window. It, they're, they're, they're so crammed together. Well, that's not really God's intention for humanity. You know, humanity in some ways are, are kind of like rats. I had pet rats years ago. They were, they, were, they were smart rats. They were educated rats. They were lab rats from the University of Arizona, but I had a couple of white rats. And they did fine, these rats, when they were further apart. But when you put them in one cage, there's limited resources. Rats don't get along. <laughs> and people are kind of the same way. You cram people together, you know, and they quit talking to each other. Uh, It's just the way it is in big cities. If you ever lived in a big city like San Francisco or New York or Los Angeles, people quit talking. But the further you get away, people become friendlier. You know, they help each other. Sometimes on ranches and farms, they help each other. You know, they got space. And it's easier to look after those who are your neighbors. Well, of course, we're going to use some of the assets... We'll talk about some of that in a moment, what assets, but some of the assets to build and rebuild God's way, not just for profit. (laughs) That won't be our, our motivation. Think about the wealth and opulence that will go into building the third temple in the millennium in Jerusalem, for example. A temple will be really the religious center of the planet 
in that way, representing the, the quality of the great God and his family. Physically, the quality, you'll see it in the structure. It's calculated that the first temple, built by Solomon, contained 8 million pounds of gold. That's a lot of gold. 76 million pounds of silver. That's a lot of precious metal. And this was used to reflect the quality and the character of the great God. First class, all the way, substantial. It becomes a physical reflection of God's character to us human beings for all to see. And that's yet future. Some would calculate that today this would represent over a half a billion dollars when you include construction costs. We're speaking of the third temple yet to be built, uh, yet to be built as we understand in the millennium. There's no reason to think of the third temple in Jerusalem when Jesus Christ is ruling as king of kings. There'll be any less dazzling and yet more so. And the same will be true for Jerusalem itself, headquarters city of the government of God on earth. You know, the dazzling quality of construction in the temple in Jerusalem itself will demonstrate, once again, the supreme quality of godly character of God himself, Jesus Christ, and ultimately the God family. His family, his way of life, his laws, and his plans for humanity, all humanity. Yes, we're promised inheritance of the earth and its assets for the good of humanity, not for our personal, you know, let's say, ego boost. Uh, I think of when I was a te- when I was a kid years ago. Have you ever remember or heard of Scrooge McDuck when, with all his gold and all his jewels, and he would sit on them in his vault and and play with them and maybe count them. Well, you know, that's the world's view of of accumulating. But personally, Jesus Christ himself intended to motivate us for good, also with the concept of reward in the kingdom of God for those who inherit the earth. God knows how to motivate. Not always do we respond in the right way, but God knows how to motivate. God uses rewards or benefits to attract us initially as we're attracted to the truth initially, with the thought that in time we'll want to see those same rewards, those same benefits uh, for our family and eventually for others and eventually for all human humanity, the whole world. And that's all part of outgoing concern, wanting to see for others benefit in the same way and have a good life and have a good future and have good potential. A definition of genuine, outgoing love. Again, as opposed to one who simply piles it up. And, of course, the whole purpose of rewards and inheritance is to benefit the human family, is to use it for good. And there are so many ways we will use it for good, the assets of the planet. People obviously are motivated, and and we're kind of programmed to to be motivated for personal benefits. So many of Christ's parables did exactly that to get our attention. 
And God has programmed us as the beginning level of motivation. That's self-preservation, self-benefit. The Bible, though, is full of amazing rewards that God uses to motivate us. And, of course, the highest level of motivation, it should transition to want to see others benefit. We want to share it with others. We want to see their lives change. We want to see families grow. We want to see marriages work. We want to see the standard of living on the planet on average rise. You know, that is ultimately how we will, let's say, get a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment as we see others succeed. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. I think this verse here, a well-known verse, but I think it has so much to it, and you look at the depth of it. Of course, it speaks of faith, and we know we know there's a lot to be said about faith. And it says, without faith, and what is faith? Well, you could define it in a lot of ways. I think of it as rock-solid confidence in the reality of the great God and His plan, His purpose. He'll keep His word. Based on the evidence, rock-solid confidence. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. You know, it's that's kind of like step one, having confidence in God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. That's kind of like a baby step, believing in the reality of the great God. Of course, you know, even the even the demons believe and tremble, but. That we at least, to please God, we have to prove one way or another the reality of the Creator, the biblical God. And I've often challenged our teens over the years to not just assume God exists, not just hope He exists, but to get busy and prove it in so many different ways, you know, intellectually, rationally, and other. The analysis of evolution as the faults religious system of humanity are one of them. Well, we should, we should challenge young people. I think I challenge myself and my teens to do that. That's when I started getting more serious. And you've got to prove the existence of God or not. can't just assume so. Well, that He exists. You've got the proof. You're convinced. Not a shadow of the doubt. He's the author of the Scriptures. Okay, so that's kind of basic starting faith. God's existence, totally rejecting the false religion of evolution, that creation occurred without a creator. There must be other life forms out there because we evolved. And so, you know how that goes. The whole purpose of NASA in a space program initially was to find the evidence, the origins of life. And they keep looking at the wrong place. <laughs> to the moon to Mars and, and other planets looking for the evidence of the origin of life. And the origin of life, obviously the origin of life that we're aware of, is right here on this planet by the Creator as well. And it goes on in Hebrews 11 saying that to please God, we must, beyond the shadow of a doubt, prove, believe that He is a rewarder. This is a higher level of faith. He is a rewarder of those who wholeheartedly diligently seek Him. You know, 
It is something that you have to experience and you have to prove. God's going to bless you. He keeps His Word. His laws are good. Cause and effect. You're going to benefit. And whatever way God shows you and me that we need to change a little bit here or there, we're going to benefit. It always goes with the territory. We may not realize it at the time, but we're going to benefit. We're going to benefit in relationships with each other. We're going to benefit with our relationship with the great God. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Well, that's more advanced faith. That's more one has that concrete awareness. Whatever happens in our life, difficult at times as it may be, there's a better world coming, and we're a part of it. And we're not perfect, but we're tracking that way, and we want to be found worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and and to stand before the Son of Man at His return. Well, Hebrews 11.6, fundamental tenets of recognizing the true God of the universe, He exists, He rewards those who obey Him, who follow Him in so many different ways, in this age, not, not principally financially. We'll get there. <laughs> Character must come first. He will reward them, or us, with unimaginably fulfilling positions in His family to help others succeed, coming into God's family, to see them prosper, to see family strength and marriage strength probably stronger after a few generations than we've ever experienced ourselves. You know, not uncontaminated by Satan's world. Well, the God we know wants us to excel into His kingdom so God can use us more powerfully to help bring others into His family in the millennium and the second resurrection. Christ used this kind of motivation for reward many times in His teachings. You know, and the reward, again, is not self-centered. A greater reward allows you to have a greater level of fulfillment to help more human beings come into His family to see the satisfaction of success generation after generation, almost like your own children generationally under your oversight and guidance. Incredible fulfillment like none of us have ever experienced in this life. Notice Christ's statement concerning His return in Matthew 16, verse 27. So many of His parables and His teachings had mentioned reward, blessings for obedience. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of the Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. He's going to reward those according to the efforts. It helps word studies. The Greek word translated reward is defined as to give from, i.e., to return especially as a payment in relation to the source of giving back. And when Christ returns to set up His kingdom, He will reward each of us 
if we're resurrected or changed, according to our effort and our works, you know, as they will be under his his control and his guidance. That being said, I have to always qualify this, that eternal life is not a reward, not something you can work for, not something you can earn. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's a free gift based on Christ's sacrifice and our repentance. The Apostle Paul stated, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 So we have to get that straight. You know, eternal life is not something we can earn. It is a blessing. It's a gift. Have our, let's say, our sins washed away and covered. And of course, God wants a whole lot more than just a sinless being. A tree is sinless. God, God wants a human being that has his sins washed away and then beginning to develop character, kind of like a beautiful painting. Character must come. It takes time. And so sinlessness, at least at baptism, if it's genuine, receiving God's Spirit, then we must move on to developing character, kind of character that God can trust. So you can say, now I know I can trust you with the lives of so many other human beings, and I know you will, you will raise them <laughs> properly as a loving parent, though technically we won't be their parents. Uh, but it will be such a, such a blessing. So gaining entrance into eternal life is not our reward. The rewards that God offers us and His family are based on our efforts in this life. Let's take a look at one of the main parables that Christ used to illustrate clearly that our reward, our initial blessing of service in God's family in the millennium are determined by our efforts today, our efforts especially overcoming, changing. It's a whale of a lot more than just knowing the truth. You know, that's the foundation, that's the starter, but it's a whale of a lot better. Some people assume that they know the truth, and they're tight with God. And that's all That's all they grasp. It's kind, of like, um, it's kind of like the Protestant world. Give your heart to Jesus, and you're in. You don't have to do nothing or anything. Well, you know, that's not what God has, has in mind. It, God wants us to develop His character. Overcoming is so much... Of our works. It's not all of it, but it is so much of our works. Overcoming ourselves. Luke 19. Luke chapter 19 and verse 11. 1911. Christ is going to make it clear here. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Of course, speaking of Christ, going back to the Father and then returning at the time of the institution of the kingdom. Verse 13, So he called ten of his servants and delivered them ten minas, of course, we know these 
units of money and said to them, do business till I come. Do business. Now, that means the servants were given certain assets to invest, to work with, to multiply, to see how much they could accomplish, increase the investment. And God has a great investment in us. He gives us his spirit. He wants to see this kind of the down payment, we might say, of eternal life. He wants to see what we'll do with it. How will we work it? How will we develop it? You and I have been given the same incredible opportunity. We see this Christ analogy here. He, he wants to see what we'll do with that investment. And again, the question is, will we work it? Will we develop more of God's character? Will we be faithful and uncompromising? Will we show outgoing love and concern to Christ's brethren? Really, the world at large, but the laboratory, especially, is within our congregations. You know, God puts together, He calls people from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of even strange backgrounds, puts us together and now says, let me see what you can do (laughs) working with other people. They're not like you. Though we have the same purpose and the same goal, we come from all kinds of different backgrounds, and God God is going to give us that same privilege at the beginning of the millennium to work with people from all kinds of different backgrounds. And, of course, ultimately, we need to develop that self-control and that outgoing concern. God's going to give us the opportunity to work with the lives of thousands of human beings, you know, or tens of thousands of others. And he wants to be able to trust us with their lives. Well, actually... The reward that we speak of applies initially to the kingdom of God when we are very powerful spirit beings, very powerful sons of God. Satan and his demons are gone. Okay, that's out of the way. We have the wealth, the resources of the planet, and all that that means, resources of the God family to draw on. We have unending energy. That, among many things, I look forward to. Sometimes I wake up in the morning more tired than when I went to bed. You know, my my, my mitochondria <laughs> are getting fewer and older. It's just the way we're programmed. We slowly lose energy. Well, as a member of the family of God, we don't need those mitochondria. Never-ending energy and power in the spirit world. Wisdom and understanding of Jesus Christ to draw on. And of course, you know, we need to we need to be able to make decisions, but we'll also need a multitude of counsel. But at the same time, you know, we don't want to have to pick up the phone and call Jerusalem every time we have a decision to make. God wants children who can make decisions and sometimes receive and need some counsel, of course. And in time, we'll actually work with human beings who actually want to follow us. It won't be that way for starters. We know that. It's going to be a case of mistaken identity. They think we're a problem. You know, we're Independence Day all over again. Except in this case, if you ever saw that movie, except in this case the aliens, are, in their view, are initially in Jerusalem instead of Washington, D.C. Well, Satan's done his job. You know, he wants everyone to believe in aliens and other planets and the evolution so that when the family of God arrives on this planet fully, 
They're rejected. They're rejected as a dangerous life form. Well, of course, that doesn't last long. It will be an an awesome blessing, a, a responsibility over a sizable segment of the population, and we will see ourselves rebuilding cities, as Scripture says, quality construction, not throw it up and hope it lasts for a generation. Quality construction that should last a thousand years. And I, it, it happens. There are a lot of construction, a lot of, uh, can we say, buildings in Europe that are over a thousand years old. Planned obsolescence and shoddy workmanship will not be part of the agenda in developing. Isaiah 58 and verse 12. Isaiah 58:12. It speaks about us and those among us. And it says, those, verse 12, from among you shall build the old waste places. Well, there's going to be a very great waste in so many, let's say, situations. We understand clearly World War III three major poles of power, three major battles, three major woes, you know, particularly the kings of the East and Asia and the European beast powers and the kings of the South, etc. It goes on to say, You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. Throughout the thousand years, many generations will come. And you shall be called repairer of the breach. Repairer of the breach, you know, between, well, the purpose God had for humanity, that breach between God and humanity, or humanity and God, who totally lost it. And also the restorer of streets to dwell in. Streets to dwell in. Well, we take that literally. Safe streets that are, other scriptures refer to children playing in the streets in Jerusalem, where safety is a priority. And all this rebuilding effort that we could talk about will take a lot of human effort as well, physical human effort, and we will direct the process under Christ's guidance and direction, but it still will take a lot of human effort. You know, it's not just poof. God's not going to work that way. Millennial human labor will still need to be paid in one way or another, to support them. And that's where the resources that we inherit will come into play. Part of our inheritance, that is, that will fund these massive rebuilding and restoration projects. There's no shortage of assets and resources on the planet. There's a shortage of the will and the knowledge and the outgoing concern that should go with it. Historically, in ancient Israel, the financial system we know is primarily handled through precious metals, silver and gold. Will it be the same in the kingdom of God? We don't know for sure, but very likely. It's been the medium of exchange for thousands of years, precious metals. Look at Isaiah, Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60 and verse 1. 
I think one scripture I always get excited about, but it always reminds me of our resurrection, our change. Isaiah 60, verse 1, it says, Arise. You know, I think of it, we could say, lift off. (laughs) Arise. You know, where one suddenly has received a spirit body, whether one was dead or alive. You know, it's not the same old you. This is a very powerful spirit being, no longer prone to the laws of physics and entropy. You know, it's no longer prone to some of the laws of thermodynamics where where organized energy continues to run down. You know how that goes in the universe. Stars burn out, people age, they die, mountains erode, and all the rest. Well, as a spirit being, that's not going to happen. Arise, shine, meaning fully glorified, as Jesus Christ was glorified, very powerful spirit being, shine, for your light has come. I suppose one would be thinking, wow, this is it. You know, thankfulness, this is after all this time, the reality of it. For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, firstborn. You know, the few whom God has trained in Satan's world to rule the nations in love, in outgoing concern. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and His glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light. That means the nations of the earth. And the kings to the brightness of your rising. It will get people's attention, obviously. Initially, it will be fear, assuming a danger to the planet. But but that will turn around fairly quickly. You know, They will begin to see that we mean them good. We have a better plan. And we're here for them. And we'll mean it. And we'll begin to supply their needs, of course. Verse 5. Then you shall see and become radiant. Radiant. Joy, excitement, thankfulness, relief. And your heart shall swell with joy, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. Well, obviously, never fully tapped. Fishing stocks may be ruined at times, but not the, not the total abundance of the sea. According to some scientific evidence, some of the more specialized geologists believe when it comes to the ocean floor, some would project and calculate enough gold in the seafloor to give every person on the planet, I don't know where they got this figure, nine pounds of the precious metal. Well, nine pounds would be a lot, but anyway, um, there's no shortage of assets. Goes on and goes on to say in uh, verse five, and the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The wealth of the Gentiles, the nations of the earth, the wealth of the planet will be, be redistributed and not concentrated in the top one percent of humanity or the corporations. Verse nine. Surely the coastland shall wait for, for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring 
your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel, because He has glorified you. So it will be evident that the resources inheriting the planet, the earth, will be abundant and will be used for the good of the potential. In this case, potential future family, those alive during the millennium. And, you know, as that building process occurs, rebuilding, organization, there will also, besides Jerusalem, there will also need to be, I believe, regional headquarters of the God family, not just one one location, but regional headquarters. Yes, Jesus Christ will be in Jerusalem, but locally there will need to be, I assume, prominent headquarter estates where meetings and activities, maybe dinners, etc., with the local citizens. You know, we'll, we'll be developing leadership and teaching and training, and we'll be need to be developing leadership. It's, it's not just for the firstborn. It's for all of God's family. Let's go over to Isaiah 30 and verse 21. Isaiah 30 and verse 21. Verse 20 and verse 20. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity, well, that happens with humans, and we have that from time to time, even in, of course, in Satan's society, and the water of affliction... You know, we're all tested. We have to pass our tests so we can graduate. Yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. Speaking of humans, their teachers are going to be evident. They can be contacted. They can be seen. But your eyes shall see your teachers. You know, the members of the God family will be available. Your eyes shall see your teachers. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way... Walk in it whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. Point being, the sons of God, the firstborn, will be seen. I think a lot of one-on-one, a lot of instruction. It'll be exciting. Initially, of course, there will be so much ground to cover. But we will be have so much more capacity of spirit beings with total recall. I'm not exactly there. <laughs> I wish I had more recall. But total recall, uh, I think you can prove that, but I won't take the time now. But I think as a spirit being, we'll have that capacity. Of course, we'll have so much more to learn. But total recall, instant recall, of the human spirit as a spirit being then, how much more effective teaching could we be? Amazing. Well, the regional headquarters or local headquarters, will represent the quality of the God family as well. The physical quality will reflect on the spiritual quality, the character of the God family. There might even be, who knows, special dinners for human leaders. Again, we'll have to develop human leadership as well. We'll be training people, as I mentioned, for leadership. it's, It's not just for the firstborn. In every community, the facilities for worship 
will be the finest quality of the land. No longer the rental facilities that we use today. For a good reason, a good purpose, we use rental facilities. Why? I often tell new people because rather than spending more money on ourselves, we want to give to the world. You know, outgoing concern. We want to put more into TV, into the Internet, into, you know, the whole approach with our literature. We want to freely we've received. We want to give freely to the world. That's now. But in the millennium, of course, the facilities will represent the quality of the God family. God himself, Jesus Christ, but the whole family. And there will be permanent facilities used for worship and to glorify God's way of life. Years ago, my wife and I, and I assume some of you, but our four very young children attended Sabbath services in Ambassador Auditorium in Pasadena and uh, for over three years every Sabbath afternoon. And it was spectacular, at least. You know, it wasn't the quality, of course, it wasn't the quality of, of the past te- temple or the future temple, but it still was spectacular. It was uplifting. It was dedicated to the great God, and the physical structure represented the character of our God. Yeah. Even on that level, there were crystal chandeliers and wool carpets, rose onyx, marble, and jade. And I can remember walking into foyer every Sabbath, my wife and I and our, our four young children, and I would see that natural light flooding in through all that glass and reflected off of the chandeliers. And it was uplifting. You know, architecture can be uplifting. And I I often thought, well, how in the world could you ever have a bad day coming in here on the Sabbath, coming in here to honor God uh, in that environment? And we'll want to reproduce those kinds of environments in the millennium, representing once again the quality and the character of the great God. Well, brethren, the same type of environment and more will be so beneficial to humanity as we lead them out of the darkness of Satan's society, out of the incredible rebellion and ignorance of the plan of God, of the great God, His way of life. And finally, brethren, in this age now, many of us, we know, in fact, probably all of us, have less than perfect health, often debilitating aches and pains. You know how that goes lack of mobility, injuries, deficiencies that make physical life a struggle and a grind sometimes, basically as one gets older. But this we know, our life and its limitations in Satan's world are so very temporary compared to what God has in mind, compared to God's intention for us, compared to eternity where we will have indeed boundless energy, total health, the greatest healing ever, will be at our change or resurrection, absolute total health, absolutely no physical degeneration like we have now as physical humans. And with the result of, I think, even eternal youth, eternal youth, 
Uh, you know, that sounds strange. The world would pay any amount of money for that. But you know, in the God family, there's no reason for degeneration. There's no reason whatsoever. The physical laws do not apply in the same way. And an energized individual who will be, in appearance, I'm sure, in their prime, in their prime, and able to function 24 hours a day rather than a third of your life unconscious or whatever. Incredible. Having fulfillment, can I say fun, but that fulfillment will be fun as we work with other human beings under our responsibility, under our control. As the Apostle Paul reminded us, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with a glory that shall be revealed in us. Notice that? In us as fully glorified spirit beings. That's Romans 8.18. You know, this life is so short. We only have a brief training period for the incredible life to come. I'm sure, you know, a few years or a hundred years or 500 years into the millennium as spirit beings, we'll look back on this life. You know, this life seems maybe so long now, year after year after year, but we'll look back on this life and we'll think it was short compared to what we're doing 500 years into the millennium. It was short. It was only training. That was it. So we may be thinking, why didn't I apply myself more? Why, did, why, why, why didn't I have that, that vision, that incredible vision of inheriting the earth and what we will do with it in the millennium and beyond? What an awesome privilege to enter the kingdom of God, to enter the family of God with our destiny, so to speak, to literally inherit the earth and to help millions if not billions of human beings, enter into the family of God. Well, brethren, hopefully we can take some of that, that reality. Sometimes we think of it as mental vision. We can take some of that to motivate us, if we can be motivated, to apply ourselves more fully. Preparation, training, character, outgoing concern. So God can use us more effectively And we can have that tremendous fulfillment as literal firstborn sons of God, forever joyful and serving the family of God for that thousand years and for eternity out into the galaxies in Romans 8, forever and ever. Well, God doesn't tell us everything in His plans, but we've got enough to be motivated, to be excited, and to fully take up the challenge in preparation for eternal life.